Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we're technically past October and that spate of spooky episodes that comes along with it. But the subject of this episode, Johann Conrad Dippel, could really fit right in with that batch. And honestly... I have to confess here, he probably would have been with that batch if this book that I had ordered for $2.59 had come in time. A little peek into our world. I know. We're always, um, I don't want to say complaining. We're always te- telling people, I guess, especially people who write in about books, that we don't really I'm have a the, research budget. Yeah, I'm on the waiting list for this book at the library, waiting for this cheap book to come from Amazon, whatever it is. Yeah, so we're kind of at the mercy of, of uh, what's available. Of time, just like of everyone time, else. Of time, yeah. So if we, we take a while to do your request, sometimes this is why. We're just, <laughs> we're just waiting to be moved up on the waiting list, but... Back to our story. Dipple's story really straddles a line between spooky and science. And I think that's why it makes a good non-Halloween episode, too. I mean, we've really come to love these science episodes that we've done. And uh, and this really fits in with that. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. They're popular with listeners. And I don't know, they're just a little outside of our, our normal repertoire, almost. But yeah. this guy really combines a lot more than your typical uh, scientific pursuit. He does. In his life's work, we find a mix of theology, science, alchemy, and medicine. And if that's not interesting enough, there are also the rumors that are involved in this tale, rumors of mysterious experiments involving the reanimation of of we don't know what, something, maybe people, maybe animals, and also rumors of body snatching. So if you didn't already guess it from that description, there's a link here, or maybe just the supposition of a link to Dr. Frankenstein, the character from Mary Shelley's famous novel. And that's probably the main reason that Dipple is a frequent request from our listeners. Maybe uh, a lot of them believe that he was the inspiration for that character. And of course, if this is starting to sound kind of familiar, we already did an episode last year called Who is the Real Frankenstein? And it was about Giovanni Aldini. But the character of Frankenstein is kind of like the one of Indiana Jones. There are several different historical figures that people believe could have been possible inspirations. And we named a few of them in that Who was the Real Frankenstein podcast. Maybe one reason why we didn't explore that possibility more, though, is because there are some legit-sounding reasons cited as to why Dipple could couldn't have been the Frankenstein inspiration, which we're, of course, going to mention later on. But the potential Frankenstein connection, while it may have been the reason we heard about Dippel, that's not the only reason that we became interested in learning more about him. He was also just this rascally, controversial figure, and you know how we love those. He also created a concoction that seems fit for some sci-fi horror story, but according to an article in Medical History by E.E. Ainsley and W.A. Campbell, was really included in pharmaceutical books as a sort of universal medicine until the early 19th century. And uh, this concoction was called Dipple's Oil, and Dipple thought it to be the elixir of life. Okay, so one of the reasons why it's so hard to know whether Dipple truly could have been the inspiration for Frankenstein is that a lot of the details of his life are pretty sketchy. According to Radu Florescu in his book In Search of Frankenstein, 
This is partly because a lot of primary sources related to Dippel's life, including his doctoral dissertation, were destroyed during the Allied bombings of Darmstadt and Gießen, which uh, is where he studied. So all these papers about his life are no longer with us, unfortunately. Florescu's own biographical sketch of Dippel is one that we refer to a lot, and he put it together through studying more than 70 works which Dippel composed, including one that contained his autobiography, as well as Dippel biographies by other writers, including Carl Voss. So one thing that most accounts of Dippel's life really agree on is how it began. He was born August 10th, 1673 at, and this is probably one of the biggest reasons that people make the Mary Shelley-Frankenstein connection. It's because he was born at a place called Frankenstein Castle, about a mile south of Darmstadt. So I'd say that's a pretty big connection. Mm-hmm. So today this castle is basically a ruin that overlooks the Oldenwald, but it was once the home of the Baron's Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein, maybe more accurate. Yeah, and uh, they were a German feudal family, but they had vacated the place by the time Dippel was born, having sold the place in 1662. By the time Dippel was born, the castle, however, had become a hospital for people who had been injured in the war with France. And his parents, Anna Eleonora Munchmeyer and a Lutheran minister named Johann Philipp Dippel, were both refugees there. According to that medical history article we mentioned, Dippel's father wanted him to become a Lutheran minister, too. He would have been the fifth generation in his family to do so. But Florescu notes that Dippel was always kind of a strange kid. For one thing, he was kind of a loner. The other kids gave him the nickname the Owl for his tendencies to keep to himself and also to read by candlelight in one of the castle towers at night, which sounds pretty brave (laughs) for a young kid. He was also considered kind of odd for the way he regarded himself. Uh, He was really smart, and that seems pretty evident by pretty much all accounts. Ainsley and Campbell's article says that at Dippel's secondary school, Darmstadt Gymnasium, his name was first on the role of distinguished old boys, But Florescu says that Dippel considered himself, quote, a superior individual animated by a, quote, higher spirit who could figure out the mysteries of the universe. So he basically thought that his brilliance was limitless. Something that makes sense of his later achievements in life. Yeah, and something that shows us why maybe he wouldn't have been content with uh, following his father's footsteps as far as profession is concerned. Exactly. So Dippel enrolled at the University of Gießen in 1691. He was about 17 years old, and he was planning on studying theology still. He registered under a different name, though, from Dippel. He registered with the name Frankensteiner, which was another reason that the, the name is kind of stuck with him throughout the years. And he earned a reputation at school for being extremely intelligent, but also for being really vocal about debating theological and scientific points with his professors. He graduated in three years and apparently really shocked some people with his dissertation, which was entitled On Nothing, (laughs) and as such was considered to be a confession of skepticism. Sounds like a classic college kid move, though, doesn't it? You write your dissertation, quote, on nothing. In a way, yes. (laughs) 
It wasn't too long after that that Dippel adopted the Lutheran pietist point of view. And at that time, the Lutheran church was divided into Orthodox and pietist contingents. And the Orthodox camp conformed to the Lutheran creeds and liturgy. And the pietists basically believed that the, quote, good life was more important than sticking to a creed. So if that separation makes sense to you guys. According to Ainsley and Campbell's article, the switcheroo may not have been that big of a surprise either, since Dippel, quote, began to express doubts about the catechism at age nine. But Florescu asserts that Dippel's tendency to change his stance seems to have had more to do with him wanting to win a debate than any sort of real desire to find a fundamental truth, which I think is sort of interesting. It's like he it was more about the argument itself than what he was what arguing. He Regardless of this wavering stance, though, he wrote extensively on theology, and those works puzzled a lot of people because he did kind of go back and forth. Ainsley and Campbell cite one professor who was really confused by Dippel's theological work. He said, quote, A man must have the gift of divination to be able to deduce a regular and consistent system of doctrine from the various productions of this incoherent and unintelligible writer who was a chemist into the bargain and whose brain seems to have been heated to a high degree of fermentation by the fire of the laboratory. I don't know about you, Dublina, but this makes the editor in me just squirm. Oh, I know. (laughs) I'm imagining having to edit this guy. But if you look up works about Dippel now, a lot of what's out there focuses on his theological career. But even after earning a degree in theology, he didn't really stick to to what he seemed to know best, to lecturing about just theology. He was somebody who, for whatever reason, had a lot of confidence in lecturing about things that he knew very little, if anything, about. After graduating, he he didn't get a teaching position at the University of Gießen, maybe because he had sort of rubbed folks the wrong way with all of that switcheroo debating he did. So he moved on to the Imperial University of Strasbourg in 1694, where, according to Bob Curran's book, Man-Made Monsters, he started lecturing for a short time on alchemy and chiromancy, which is fortune-telling, until his license to teach there was revoked. That already gives you a pretty good sense of this guy's diversity. If he's not just talking about theology, he's talking about fortune telling. Yeah. And at this point, I mean, in alchemy too, and at this point he hadn't really even studied alchemy that much. And you kind of indicated that when you said that he was always lecturing about things that he really didn't know that much about. He just sort of felt confident enough that he could teach other people, even though he didn't have expertise in these areas himself. But Florescu also notes that Dippel didn't necessarily need to find an official classroom to teach these things. While in Strasbourg, he became known for lecturing in all kinds of spots, salons, taverns, churches, or even just lecturing out in the street. And he would lecture on all kinds of things, too, though astrology and chiromancy were probably the most popular. According to Ainsley and Campbell's article, Dippel also practiced palmistry during this time. I don't know. To me, an open-air lecture on palmistry sounds like it would be pretty entertaining. <laughs> I would go to that, I'd, a lunchtime I'd lecture stop by on palmistry. You'd be going to get lunch, and you'd see this guy lecturing, and you'd stop for a little while. 
But some students, we're making him out to sound like kind of a really weird guy who maybe nobody was paying much attention to, but some students really looked up to him. But yeah, I mean, remember, he was brilliant. He, he was, and he captivated people. But Florescu also points out that chronicles from the time allude to some kind of, quote, scandalous behavior on Dipple's part. And after living where he was for a couple years, he was forced to flee. And exactly why he had to do that is a bit unclear. Florescu says that he was implicated in some body snatching incidents in a local cemetery. Ainsley and Campbell say that it's because Dipple killed an opponent in a duel. So (laughs) very different explanations there. Both good reasons to get out of town. Regardless of why he had to leave, Dipple did have to go and lay low for a little while. According to Florescu, he returned home for this period, and home at that time was near Frankenstein Castle with his parents. So this is about the time when Dipple began to really seriously study and practice alchemy. And he got into it when a Lutheran minister from Gießen gave him a couple of books on alchemy. And these books included Raymond Lilly's Experiments and Guillaume Postel's Veil Raised on the Mysteries of the Beginning of the World. He basically pushed these books on Dipple because he supposedly believed that Dipple would be able to understand them better than anyone else. So, again, kind of a nod to his supposed intellect. His brilliance. Mm-hmm. And after reading them, Dipple apparently decided that the whole make and gold thing that everybody was so interested in at the time really didn't sound that tough after all. I mean, you guys should go listen to our episode from last October on alchemy if you want to see really how people how much people were into this right he decided he wanted to give it a shot and he was so confident that he would succeed that he bought an estate completely on credit to set up his lab there it cost 50,000 guilders but of course he didn't anticipate paying the yeah no problem would be a problem because of course he would be able to make gold and, and pay in that. So in about 1700 or 1701, sometime in there, he claimed that he had succeeded in finding the secret formula for gold. But the crucible containing that broke into the fire and was tragically lost. And according to legend, alchemists weren't supposed to use the gold that they created for personal gain. So, you know, this idea of of buying a place on on a credit and then you'd pay it all back with the gold you could make, not a not legit for, for real alchemists to be planning on doing that. So maybe it was a little bit of bad luck. Yeah, a little curse-like situation going on there. But there are differing accounts of what happened with Dipple after this. According to that medical history article that we were talking about, Dipple had to flee again to escape angry creditors. Florescu, however, says that he tried unsuccessfully to recreate this gold formula that he'd lost for three years after that and then started wandering. I have to wonder... Okay, if you'd made the gold formula, didn't he write it down? Well, and why it would take, what is it? It's longer. It takes longer to try to recreate it, doesn't it, than when he made it the first time? It sounds like he he was just messing around with stuff the whole time. Yeah, a pinch of this, a little of that, (laughs) a little philosopher's stone. Either way, Dipple began to 
wander through other parts of Germany and through foreign lands, too. For a while, he settled in Berlin, which was at the time the capital of the Kingdom of Prussia. And while there, he was under the protection of Count August von Wittgenstein, who I think we've mentioned the Wittgenstein family in other episodes. They pop up from time to time. The Count convinced King Frederick I to set Dippel up with a mansion and a nice laboratory. And it's there that he started experiments of a very different nature. He set out to discover an elixir that would cure a variety of conditions, kind of like a universal medicine. So it sounds like something that we would all kind of want, right? Something to cure whatever ails you. Only listen to how he created it. So in order to create this wonder product of his, he started experimenting with distilling animal parts, namely blood, first, and then bones, which he would boil to extract the fatty matter. And according to Florescu, quote, the product was conducted through iron condensing tubes and fed into receivers where the crude bone oil collected. That doesn't sound very good. That product, according to Ainsley and Campbell, smelled and tasted pretty gross, as you would imagine. (laughs) But it was used in medical practice to cure a number of ailments. And for a while, it had a good reputation as a medicine until the end of the 18th century. It was named Dipple's Oil or Dipple's Animal Oil, and it was said to stimulate the nervous system if you took it internally. But I think people used to rub it (laughs) on the outside of their bodies as well. They did not want to consume it necessarily. I don't know if they didn't want to, but you didn't necessarily have to. I guess it depended on what you were trying to treat. Mm -hmm. I think I read that you could use it to treat spasms, maybe rub it on. It's a miracle product. I mean, I guess it works for just about anything. Although Dipple's animal oil does not make it sound appealing either. (laughs) It doesn't. Maybe just Dipple's oil would have been a better name. And, you know, I've seen it both ways. I've seen it as Dipple's oil and Dipple's animal oil. But I think I would choose to partake of the dipples oil before the animal (laughs) oil, for sure. But through this work in boiling animal parts, Florescu also points out that Dipple made a very different kind of discovery. By boiling animal parts and mixing in iron and some various other ingredients, he apparently ended up with a chemical called potassium ferrocyanide. And when that chemical was mixed with air, it became this brilliant blue color that became known as Prussian blue or Berlin blue. For some reason, that discovery wasn't made public until about 1724, but that blue dye was widely used by artists. Yeah, you'll still see paint colors today. It's a, it's a color still, Prussian blue. Right. And just a side note here, since we've done some poison podcasts recently, another German chemist took Dippel's chemical and diluted it with sulfuric acid, which created hydrocyanic or Prussic acid, which Florescu calls one of the most potent poisons. So all of this here, you know, we have this miracle drug, and you'd think that Dipple's oil and and Prussian blue, the the color, the paint, the pigment, would have been enough to earn Dipple some measure of wealth and respect. But he kept getting implicated in various scandals. Florescu asserts that this was a result of other scientists and alchemists being jealous of him and thus making him the subject of their intrigue. But regardless of the reason, Dipple had to stay on the move pretty much most of his life, according, again, to Florescu, another similarity to Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, who, as you remember from the book, is pretty much always on the move. Um, although that's partly because there's a there's a monster involved. That's true. He had motivation. <laughs> he, he had good reason to 
to keep out, keep going. But um, finally, Dippel headed to Holland after Berlin, where he studied medicine in Leiden and earned his degree by 1711 or so. And he was said by some to be a pretty good physician. And according to Ainsley and Campbell, he even attempted to set up a medical practice outside of Amsterdam, but again had to flee, this time to Denmark in 1714. And again, the reason why he had to get out of town and so fast seems to be unknown. Although Florescu does point out that after earning his medical degree, Dippel was doing experiments with animals, taking them apart to just try to find out how it all fit together. And apparently at least one of Dippel's biographers suggests that he was trying to understand the process that, quote, engenders life itself. Another similarity to Shelley's character, if it is true. Well, and this reminded me a little bit, too, of, of the blood work episode, mm-hmm. trying to find trying to find the root of the soul. I mean, that's pretty similar to, to trying to find the process that engenders life itself. These experiments going around are going on kind of at the same time um, to find what seems like unfindable things. So maybe these crazy experiments that Dippel was doing had something to do with his flight. But after going to Denmark, Dippel again got caught up in a series of political intrigues that resulted in him getting thrown into prison for seven years on the Danish island of Bornholm. He was sentenced to life, but was released at the request of the Queen of Denmark in 1726, who wanted him to be her physician. So that shows that he must have had a pretty good medical reputation at the time. I'd say if you're thinking, get this prisoner out of jail. I need him to be my doctor. (laughs) And I'm the Queen of Denmark. Right. A year later, though, he ended up moving to Sweden, where he worked as a physician in the court of the Swedish king. So really a dramatic rise in fortunes for him. He continued to encounter controversy there, though, as well, and eventually returned home to Germany in 1729 after being gone for some 25 years. Yeah, what I've read about him, Floresco in his book talks a lot about how Dippel was sort of drawn to home his whole life. He he sort of kept in touch with his family, his siblings there, and he was he wanted to come home. So it, it makes you question even more these things that made him move from place to place, well, what and, it was. And drawn to one place in particular. Yeah, he returned to his family home near Castle Frankenstein, the place where he was born. And Florescu says that it's there at home that Dippel started working on some kind of, quote, grand design and some Citing a document that most scholars ignore, this author says that Dippel did claim to finally have achieved something of this sort, some sort of chemical secret. And then he apparently offered it to the local landowner near his family home in exchange for ownership of Castle Frankenstein (laughs) and its domain. So he's sort of focused on this place where he was born. Getting the castle. He wanted it. In exchange for a grand design. The deal didn't work, though. No, it fell through. And it's still not clear what the secret he was offering for the castle was. But Florescu thinks it has something to do with a mysterious pamphlet that Dippel had printed in 1733, a year after the deal fell through. In it, He claimed that he discovered a formula for prolonging his own life until 1801, at which point he would have been 135 years old. Apparently, this came at a time when his enemies were spreading rumors that he was going to die. So maybe he sort of came up with this to counter that. Unfortunately, though, for Dippel, he ended up dying just a year after making that prophecy on April 24th, 1734. He was found in the 
palace of his old friend, the Count von Wittgenstein, where he had a laboratory. And Dippel's body was cold and rigid when it was found, but he was also foaming at the mouth, and the entire right side of his face was blue. And the medical history article that we've mentioned earlier says that the cause of death was probably a stroke, but of course, especially for a guy like this, people suggested that it could have also been poison. Still other people, and this has got to be the the best option on the table, think that he'd been killed by the devil for not keeping some sort of contract. That last theory is definitely fitting for a spooky tale like Shelley's. But there are several reasons why people think that Dipple probably wasn't actually the inspiration for Frankenstein. For one thing, many of the traits that people attribute to him may actually post-date Mary Shelley's novel. So these were things that were sort of retroactively put onto Dipple, maybe even after the movies were made. Uh, There's also some doubt about how much Shelley could have known about Dipple's life. She definitely traveled in the area where Castle Frankenstein is, but who knows if she actually heard about his story. And finally, of course, we just don't really know that much about Diffel's life. Of course, Shelley might not have necessarily been at the same disadvantage that modern scholars are, since she would have been long before the World War II uh, bombings in the places where all his records were. That's true. But another thing I, I think of here is that even if she had been interested in the things he was doing and wanted to find out more about him. As you mentioned earlier, I think there were a lot of people who were doing these sorts of experiments at the time. A popular pastime. Right. So she could have just been inspired by that fact rather than Dipple's specific story. But it's interesting to speculate about, and I'm glad to know a little bit more about him. So, you know, good request from listeners here. Yeah. Even though we had to go to some lengths to find out more about him. (laughs) Well, I... I am guessing from the reception of the spooky episodes this October, people won't mind too much that this one is coming out in November. Keep the spookiness rolling, you know? Yeah, and uh, I think to that end, we have some spooky listener mail to share, too. So we have a letter here from listener Kristen. And she says, I was delighted to see your episode on the Salem witch trials and listen to it immediately. My interest in the topic stems from living in Salem for about six years because my husband is a Salem native. We now return regularly to visit my in-laws. Actually, we were just there over the past weekend. And yes, the Halloween spectacle was in full swing. Anyway, I want to let you know that if you or your listeners visit Salem, there are more historical attractions related to the trials. The Peabody Essex Museum, a major art and history museum, has within its holdings documents from the trials and artifacts that were the personal effects of those involved. These are at the Phillips Library and were previously on display, though currently the library is closed to the public for renovations. However, currently open, and I know because I was just there, is a display in Old Town Hall that has some historical information regarding the trials. There are some gems that the Salemites and former Salemites are proud to show to visitors and ones that sadly get bypassed by visitors without an insider connection. Oh, and unless you want a spectacle, don't visit in October. It is way too crazy for a more serious visit. And there are many additional historic sites to visit relating maritime history, architecture, and literary history. So thanks for those travel tips, Kristen. That's what they told me when I visited the, um, the Salem Visitor Center. Oh, yeah? Check out our maritime attraction. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. 
And uh, then we have a fun note from listener Tristan, who says, Tristan here from the Shields Brothers. We are a rock band, and we were on The Voice on NBC on Team CeeLo. So a few months back, we were listening to your Jack the Ripper podcast, and you inspired us to write a song about him. It's called Saucy Jack. So, and he sent us a little YouTube link to it. Maybe Very we should cool. put that up. And he's on Team CeeLo, Atlanta, yeah. represent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So if you have any podcast inspiration stories or any travel tips like listener Kristen that you want to share with us, we welcome those. Send them our way at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist History, and we're on Facebook. Or other Frankensteins. I mean, we could just, we've done two now, so... I see a series in the works. You never know. There are some other Frankensteins that we could do if we can find the books. <laughs> the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Do we have a good article on Frankenstein? We do. Well, we have one on Frankenstein's monster. I think Robert Lamb wrote it. And it's an article called How Frankenstein's Monster Works. You can find it by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.